1 Corinthians chapter 15. Are we on? Notice I didn't say Revelation. As I promised, we'll get back there next week, Lord willing. For you visitors, we've uh, been going through the book of Revelation, looking at things to come. And uh, we've made it up to chapter 6, which is the study of the seven seals. But uh, before we continue with that study, we are taking a little sidestep and looking at two major events that will take place actually before the opening of the seven seals. We looked at one of the events last week, which was uh, the event called the apostasia in the original. The English version would be the apostasy, the great falling away among professing Christendom. And uh, this week we're going to look at an associated event, actually it takes place before the apostasia, and may well, uh, in, in part, be responsible for the apostasy, and that is the rapture. The rapture, the taking up uh, by the Lord of all true believers to himself. And we saw last week that uh, when we think about it, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was predicted uh, in over 300 passages in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel knew that God had promised one to come. And the amazing thing is, it's really amazing to pause and think about this, when we look back and realize that he came, and we can read the passages right now that God had written, describing this one when he came, and see indeed that he precisely fulfilled every prophecy, and yet, when he came, he wasn't recognized. That's incredible, isn't it? says in John, he came to his own, and his own received him not. Not only was he not recognized, he wasn't even received. He was rejected, it says. Uh, we despised him, it says in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. And uh, even to this day, uh, by and large, the nation of Israel has, is still waiting for the Messiah, even though he has already come. And one of the big reasons why Jesus was not recognized and what was not received or accepted the first time he came, we said last week, was because, uh, to be honest, uh, the people weren't waiting. They weren't expecting. They'd fallen asleep. We're saying these things because Jesus is coming again. Amen? Amen. And yet, uh, we talked about it last week, is the world waiting with breathless anticipation? How many times, we've had a week since our last message, the Lord uh, tarried another week. Can you believe it? Yes, he did. We've had another seven days. Look back over the last week. How many people did you see, meet on the street that uh, talked with you about the Lord's soon return? How many uh, news items did you see that mentioned the Lord's imminent coming? It's not exactly uh, the topic of a conversation, is it? As it says in Second Peter, uh, the scoffers say, uh, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning. Oh, hum. And it's going to continue that way for another million years. And they completely forget, they, they willfully forget, he says in that passage, that the things that God has done in the past, that He promised would happen, did happen, and so he has promised this will happen. Jesus himself said 
that he will come again. And he cannot lie. And of course, we believe the time is very, very near that he will be coming. But don't take your cue from the world around you. Because the world now is just as it was when he came the first time. Uh, the phrase that Jesus uses several times, right now, the, the key thing on people's minds is the same old day-to-day routine, buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage. Those aren't sinful things. He's not saying that. It's just that that's what people are focused on, you know, right here, right down here on earth, and not looking upward. So he will, and I believe very soon, come again. We're going to look this morning at uh, the rapture, the rapture, the taking up of true believers by the Lord Jesus personally to himself. And uh, let me say that uh, there are really, I don't know how to put it, two aspects of the Lord Jesus' personal return to the earth, and they're often confused. I think most of the believers here understand, but there are maybe some that are not clear on this, that first the Lord Jesus will come to the air and receive true believers. He will call them and they will uh, come to him in a, in a moment of time. He will return to heaven with the saints. And then later, after the tribulation, he will visibly come and the whole world will see him. In the first uh, event, the rapture, happens in a moment of time. The world will not see it. The second event, his visible coming, we will call his revelation. And it says every eye will see him. So we're going to just do a, a quick Bible study here. First of all, to distinguish between those two events. The rapture and his revelation. And uh, we're going to have a, a lot of scripture this morning, but I'm not going to uh, work you hard. You can relax. What I'll do, I'll turn to the two key passages on the rapture this morning. We'll read them together, and I want you to, uh, if you have one of these little uh, markers in your Bible, you might hold your place in the one, because we're going to refer to both of them. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read that, and then I want you to hold that place, and then we'll look in 1 Thessalonians 4, we'll read that passage, and then we'll refer back to them, and I will then read to you the other passages that I want to refer to. In showing the distinction between the rapture, the unseen by the world, quick event, where all true believers, and there are some in this room, who will be taken away in a twinkling of How long does it take an eye to twinkle? Huh? You think you could time it? Click, click? I don't think so. It's going to be fast. And uh, then I will read passages that refer to the Revelation which will be his full return to the earth, visibly, every eye shall see him. And we'll see that indeed they are two quite distinct events. So first of all, let's read together 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll begin in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Talking about our bodies. Would you like to go to heaven with this body? No, thank you. Norman, you like to see that body to heaven? <laughs> Amen. Well, that's what he's saying here. We can't go to heaven with these bodies. These bodies are getting old. Mine, I, I can tell you, my body's getting old. It gets sick. It's weak. It gets tired. Okay? Isn't it neat? God is going to give us a new body that's fit for heaven. Okay? Amen. One that won't get tired. 
one that doesn't get sick, that doesn't grow old. It's incorruptible. And that's what he's talking about here in this whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. The believers, this is only for those that know Jesus Christ now. The true believer's new body. 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, that is those who have not died, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. The other passage, First Thessalonians 4, a little bit of a right turn there. Beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Fallen asleep, those who have died in the Lord. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the next great moment on God's agenda that we have to look forward to. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be waiting anxiously for that moment to come. Now, as I said, there are many differences between this great event, the rapture, and the second coming portrayed in the banner behind me here. We'll just talk uh, about six of them this morning, and we'll be referring back to these two passages I talked about. First of all, you'll notice uh, here in 1 Thessalonians, it says that uh, he comes to the air. You see that, for example, in verse uh, 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, and that begins our time with the Lord, we shall ever be with the Lord. Now, in his second coming, he will be coming to the earth. And there are many passages that uh, teach that. I'll just uh, quote one of them in Zechariah. You can listen to this one. Zechariah 14, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two from east to west. Significant, we're going to talk about these things later when we get into the book of Revelation, that when the Lord Jesus visibly comes back, 
it's, I think it's appropriate that the place he comes back to is the Mount of Olives. That's where he will stand. And it says the, the, the Mount of Olives will literally split in two. And if you remember, of course, uh, many things happen on the Mount of Olives. One of the things that comes to mind, of course, there's a garden there. You know what the name of it is? On the Mount of Olives? It's Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. And isn't it appropriate that the place where he was betrayed with a kiss and arrested, that he would return to that place in triumph and victory? So he will come physically to the earth in the Revelation. Okay, we saw here uh, in both passages that in the rapture, the Lord Jesus comes for his saints. You believe that? You saw that? Um, now, in the Revelation, when he comes visibly, it, it, the Bible teaches that he'll be coming with his saints. I'll read one passage in Jude. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And, of course, uh, from that and other passages, we know that the saints are coming, the believers, the true believers, are coming with the Lord Jesus to reign with him on the earth. And we see from the passages that the, the saints, at that point, believers, have their rewards, they have their crowns. And they will be, be then appointed places to reign. The point being that something has already happened, the judgment seat of Christ in particular, where the saints have received their rewards. Implying that Previously, the saints had been taken up and then experienced the judgment seat of Christ and then come back with him to reign. Okay? Uh, okay, the uh, next aspect of the rapture is that uh, it's a mystery. We saw that word back in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, remember the word translated mystery in our Bibles is not talking about Sherlock Holmes. The word mystery in the New Testament, uh, the word is talking about something that was hidden before that God has now revealed. And God uses that word many times. For example, he talks about the church. The church is a mystery in the Old Testament. The church is not prophesied in the Old Testament. We looked at that when we looked at the 70 weeks of Daniel. And so the rapture is not prophesied. You're not going to find it in all the thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament, you're not going to find one prophecy of the rapture. It's a hidden thing. It's a mystery, you see. It was hidden by God, but it's something that he has now revealed to us in the New Testament. Well, when it comes to the revelation, the revelation is no mystery. Uh, and we could quote literally hundreds uh, of verses in the Old Testament that talk about the second coming, the visible Glorious second coming of the Messiah. So, the revelation is a mystery, a hidden thing which has just been revealed. And uh, the, the rapture is. And the revelation is something that has been revealed by God since uh, near the beginning of the Bible. Okay, the, the fourth difference between the rapture and the revelation. The rapture is always associated with, with blessing, with comfort. You saw at the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 that, that God said through Paul, therefore comfort one another with these words. It's a blessed event. It's a blessed hope. Something to look forward to. Okay? You believe that? 
Whereas the revelation is always pictured, his, his visible second coming is a picture of judgment, something to be dreaded by those um, who will be here. Okay, um, the uh, rapture, uh, the fifth difference, is t- takes place in a moment. We saw that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, said in a twinkling of an eye. I like that. Isn't that a great phrase? God could have used a lot of things, a twinkling of an eye. And if you've ever seen when, when someone's in a room and there's light and you, and you move your eye, it twinkles because it just for a moment catches the light and then loses it again. That's, that's, a, that's what causes a twinkle. It's so fast. And he's, he's uh, telling us, it teaches that the rapture uh, is not going to be a, a, a long process. We're going to be gone. Out of here. Just like that. Twinkling of an eye. And because of that, uh, it's going to be invisible to the world. The world's not going to see it. You know, not gonna, the world's not going to stand here looking and watching all these people go up with the Lord. We're going to be gone. Like that. Twinkling of an eye. Whereas the revelation is clearly visible. Every eye shall see it. That's what it says here. Another passage, Matthew 24. As the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the revelation. Okay, finally, and this has led to a lot of uh, accidental misuse of uh, passages, particularly in the gospel. In the rapture, those that are taken by the Lord will be taken for blessing. Those that are left behind will experience judgment. Whereas in in the second visible return, uh, there are passages that talk about those that will be taken away, but they're not taken away for blessing. They're taken away for judgment. And those that are left behind are left behind for blessing. Do you understand that? They're, they're totally opposite. We saw that here in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, that they were taken to be with the Lord. Now, he talks about those that are left behind here in 1 Thessalonians. If we just read on in chapter 5, he says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, these are the people of the world, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, in the case of uh, the revelation, he's going to take away those for judgment and leave behind for blessing. And uh, one passage is in Matthew 13. I'll just read that. Therefore, as the tares or the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Those taken, taken away for judgment, those left behind, are left for blessing. Okay, this is a whirlwind tour. We're going to take just one day here to uh, look at the rapture. So, uh, there are many, many other passages, and I encourage you to study them. And you, as you study a passage about the second coming, uh, see which event it's talking about. Okay. Um, I trust you're convinced they're two separate events. You believe that? Amen. Uh, now the question is, when 
exactly does the rapture happen? We've established, I believe, that it's a distinct event from the second coming, the, the visible return of the Lord Jesus. When does it happen? Well, as you know, we believe here that the rapture will take place before the tribulation, and we're going to talk about why we believe that now. First of all, just referring to the book of Revelation and how we've seen it so far, um, this is not a strong basis for doctrine, but I believe God is teaching us something through this. You remember we saw in, in chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the churches, remember that in Revelation? Yeah? That the picture there was the Lord Jesus standing in the midst of the churches, standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. Remember that? The vision that John had of the Lord Jesus was him standing behind him, really, right there in Patmos. He saw him standing in the midst of the lampstands. So there was the church on earth, and there was the Lord Jesus standing in the midst. Then, after we finished chapter 3, which, as we saw, was a picture of the history of the church ending with the church of Laodicea, which ends the history of the church on earth, the next time we see the Lord Jesus and the church figuratively is in heaven. And there, the church is pictured by the 24 elders. And again, in the midst, interestingly, is the Lord Jesus. Okay? So, through the history of the church and, and the picture of the church at Laodicea, which we're living in right now, the Lord Jesus on earth in the midst of the church and the, and the church here on earth, and then next, chapters 4 and 5, the church in heaven pictured by the elders. And that's the last mention of the church in the book of Revelation until the very end uh, when we're seen in heaven with him again. And in the interim now, the picture is going to be, the focus is going to be on earth and things are going to be Jewish again like the Old Testament because the Lord is now going to return his attention to the nation of Israel. He has taken up the, what is left of his true church, which is not going to be that many. Remember we said last week, right now there are... Uh, a third of the world's population, two billion people roughly, in the world, claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You think three billion people are going to be taken up by Jesus at the rapture? No. It's going to be a very small number. And we can round off and say there are going to be two billion people left who are still claiming the name of Christ. And they will become, along with the worldwide uh, religion, the Babylon the Great, whose judgment is described in chapter 17. And 18. Okay, so let's look at uh, some evidences why the tribulation is going to take the uh, rapture is going to take place before the tribulation. Let's glance at uh, uh, Romans chapter 11 here. I'd like to really go through the whole chapter, but we don't have the time. Let me just tell you ahead of time here. Um, the argument that Paul's going to use here is he's going to use a picture of a tree. And he's going to portray this tree as one root, one trunk, and it has branches in it. And he's going to describe this tree as having had the, the branches, the original branches, grafted out, he says, taken out and other branches grafted in. But then he says, you know, that's really not a natural situation to have taken off the original branches from this tree and put in these outside branches that weren't there to start off with. He said, the natural state, the most appropriate state would be someday to take out those unnatural branches that didn't belong there in the first place and put back 
the branches that were there to begin with. You follow that? Yes? I nod your head or something, okay? Yeah, okay. And the, the comparison he's going to make, the picture he's going to make there is that the, the root itself, the, the trunk, the tree, is a picture of the favor of God. We have this expression in uh, economics here in our country. When we trade with another nation, another nation is, told, is said to have a most favored nation status. Have you heard that? You, you, you've heard that expression, right? That means they're really lucky because we'll trade with them, you know. That's, that's the phrase. Well, here the picture, you could, you could think of the tree as being uh, God's most favored nation status. Okay? And the original branches, of course, were the nation of Israel. And they were the original chosen nation. But then at a point in time, uh, the picture is that he uh, moved the nation of Israel, not physically from the earth, but out of his place of favor. When did that happen? At the crucifixion. Yeah. Actually, the triumphal entry is the demarcation line, if you want to be specific about it. But right at the, the uh, end of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he, he took those branches out and he put, grafted in a new nation. Now, here's where some people get confused. That new nation is not the church. The new nation is everybody else. It's the Gentiles. The Gentiles are now in the place of favor. doesn't mean all Gentiles are saved, nor were all Jews saved but that the Gentiles are now in the place of favor. We're living in that age right now where the Gentile branches are grafted in. And, uh, but he says at the end that there's coming a time when he's going to remove those unnatural branches, the Gentiles, from the place of favor, and he's going to put the nation of Israel back again where they belong, in the place of favor. Okay? You follow that? And, of course, we see uh, God setting the stage for returning the nation of Israel to the place of favor by first physically restoring them to the land in 1948. But they're just there. Okay? That's as we speak right now. It's like we're, we're sitting in the audience and the props are on the stage and the stage is set. But the play hasn't begun yet. And it won't begin until he removes the unnatural branches from the place of favor. So let's... Uh, we'll pick up in uh, verse 17. This is Romans 11. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, he's talking to Gentiles, being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. They came first, the, the fathers, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they had all the uh, ordinance of God and so on. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Remember, he's not addressing the church. He cannot cut off the church. He's talking to the Gentiles as a single nation. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. There's that word again, mystery. You see, this was a hidden thing in the Old Testament. When you read the prophecies in the Old Testament, it's, it's really neat. God talks about the nation of Israel all the way up until the first coming of the Messiah, and then he'll talk in the same breath and, and, and uh, pick up at, the, at uh, the tribulation as if there's nothing in between, right up to the second coming. And he, he hides the church age in which we live right now in between the two. It's a hidden thing. And so it's a mystery. It was a hidden thing that God would have grafted out the nation of Israel in the first place. As it is a hidden thing that he was going to put them back in again and remove the Gentiles out of his place of favor. Verse 25, we'll, we'll finish it. That hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there it is. He said it plainly. So far he's been saying if. Now he says plainly that he will graft in the natural branches, the Jews. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Okay, so we're not going to see a tree, but there is coming a time very soon when God is going to return the nation of Israel to the place of favor, which it occupied before the church began. Okay? You're not going to see it. We're going to experience it as believers because when he removes the Gentiles from the place of favor, there's still going to be two billion professing Christians here on the earth, roughly. And it's going to be very similar to when God judged the nation of Israel. When God laid aside the nation of Israel, when they crucified the Lord Jesus, you had a whole nation of people who thought they knew God, but with hardened hearts. And so it's going to be with the professing church. There's going to be left behind here, on this earth, a large group of people who think they know God, but they're mistaken. And in fact, God's going to delude them so that they believe a lie. We'll see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, so where in this picture should be the time when God takes out the true believers? Well, clearly when he removes Gentiles from the central place of favor and returns the nation of Israel to uh, the tree, to the place of favor. There can't be two groups. Second reason. This is where God talks about the removal of what he calls the restrainer. You know what a restrainer is? Restrainer is, is something that holds something back. To restrain something is like to hold it back, right? He says uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse He's talking about the Antichrist here. He says, Now you know what is restraining 
that he may be revealed in his own time, he being the Antichrist. For the mystery, there's that word again, of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. There's one talked about here that's a restrainer who holds back lawlessness. Well, who's that? It's the Holy Spirit. That's right. Uh, many places in the, in the Scripture, God talks about the Holy Spirit being a restraining. Did you know that you don't see all the evil on the earth that you could? People always say, well, if God's got uh, such a God of love, why is there so much wickedness in the earth? You know, uh, we should say, thank God we don't see all the wickedness that we could. You, you know, he, he suppresses evil. He, he holds back evil. In uh, the, time, the days of Noah, back in Genesis, the Holy Spirit is pictured as holding back evil in the world. You know, he, he is keeping you from doing evil things. And he says there, my spirit will not strive forever with the hearts of men. And the picture there is the, of the Holy Spirit striving, quarreling, uh, restraining, holding back evil. And he says he's not going to do it forever. In uh, the Gospel of John, it says about the Holy Spirit that he's in the world convincing men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And here, he's described as restraining. You kind of get the picture of uh, a giant dam about to break, you know? And, and uh, he's, he's pushing on it, holding it back, restraining it. And as, as his restraining influence, imagine this now. God is going to stop holding back evil. Imagine that. That's what he's saying here. The re restrainer will be uh, taken away. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is re removed from the earth. He can't. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But his influence on the human heart in holding back evil is going to be stopped. And clearly along with that, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit holds back evil in the world is through the church. Now imagine what it's going to be like, just think for a moment, when on this earth, every true believer is gone. We're called the salt of the earth by the Lord Jesus. Uh, salt it pre prevents uh, decay, you know. And the picture there is that the believer, by his or her life and testimony and witness, has an effect of holding back evil. Imagine when every believer is gone. Imagine when all the prayers of the believers for people around them stop. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a world where there is no believer praying for his or her neighbors and family and nation? It's going to stop. Wow. God says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we don't know, well, we won't know until we get into heaven what the power of prayer really is. Imagine what it's going to be like when the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and women stop. That restraining influence removed. What's this world going to be like? Well, the word that we're going to see in a couple of weeks, it's brought up in Revelation 6, is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Anarchy. It's going to be a terrible place. This is the moment of the rapture, you see. 
as he removes the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in general from the hearts of men, he removes the restraining influence through the believers as he takes the believers home to be with himself. Okay, the third uh, event, we said this last week, that's associated with the rapture, is uh, mentioned here in verse 3. We saw it last week. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So, when the church is removed, there is left behind a huge professing mass. We're estimating at, let's say, two billion. And when the, all believers, all true believers are gone, now, get the picture here, church is going to continue functioning. They're going to have meetings next Sunday. But there's not going to be one spirit-filled preacher in any pulpit anywhere. Not one spirit-filled believer in the audience to hear the sermon. Not one spirit-filled teacher to speak the truth. And that's going to set the stage for what God calls here, and as we see elsewhere in Scripture, the apostasy, the great falling away. And uh, we read last week, we don't have time, we're not going to read it, but you remember later on in this passage, he talks about At that point, God is going to send a delusion himself. Imagine that. God himself touching lives individually, causing them to believe a lie as an act of judgment. Because they had heard the gospel, they knew the truth up here, but they had never bowed the knee to Christ. And because they put off coming to Christ, even though they knew the truth, God is going to cause them to believe whatever the lie is. He calls it the lie. And we don't know what that lie is. Possibly it's going to include some explanation of why there are these people gone that used to be here. We don't know what that is. But you see, the taking away of true believers will kind of tip the balance. It will allow the apostasy then, you see, to take place, the falling away from the truth. A true believer cannot fall away from the truth. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, as we said in his first coming. Uh, he was not expected, and when he came, he, incredibly, he was crucified, and religion went right on just as it always had. In fact, they were glad to get rid uh, of this nuisance. And so life will go on when all true believers are taken away. Religion will continue as strong as ever. Well, uh, we could look at many others, but probably the fourth uh, biggest evidence of the pre-tribulation rapture is that Scripture is full of uh, commands, exhortations to believers to live their lives right now because the Lord Jesus can come and take them to himself at any moment. Okay? Now, if it were going to be any time, like mid, in the middle of the tribulation, after the tribulation, well we would know when he's about to come because the tribulation is upon us, you see. But it's not the picture in the New Testament. The picture is that he can come at any moment. There's nothing left to happen, okay? Nothing left to happen to permit the Lord Jesus to come. He could come right now. I may not be able to close in prayer this morning because Jesus could come right now and all of a sudden there'd be a lot of empty chairs in here and an empty pulpit. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh man, I'd know that, I'd know what would happen. Uh-uh. God, God says in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there's going to be a lie 
and God himself will cause you a delusion to believe the lie. That's an encouragement to you this morning. If you don't know Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? I would not want to be left behind. Listen to these uh, very quickly. These admonitions, these encouragements from Scripture that clearly indicate that the Lord Jesus can come back for his saints at any moment. Uh, Romans 8, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, and listen to the intensity, by the way, that the believers should be experiencing here, waiting for the Lord. We groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. That's the resurrection. That's the thing we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? That's what we're waiting for. Not the revelation of the Antichrist. Not the tribulation, the rapture. Second Corinthians, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Again, we're waiting for the resurrection. Uh, Galatians, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into a body like His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. First Thessalonians, uh, he talks about the believers there, and he says that they, were, uh, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And there's another phrase, by the way, that occurs several times in First and Second Thessalonians. It says that He delivers us from the wrath to come. And when you read that, it's clear that the wrath to come is talking about the tribulation. And He says He delivers us from that. Uh, the last one I'll read is in Hebrews. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for Him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. I like that. It's going to lead into our last section here. Go ahead and turn to John 10. I want you to listen to this again. He says, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Most people are not going to see it. It's to those, and to those who eagerly wait for him. Now, he, he's implying there that it's only the believers. They're going to see that, you see. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin. And I don't know if you're like me, but I've often wondered, you know, what's that moment going to be like? I know uh, it's going to thrill my heart beyond any uh, power I could have imagined. But I often think of this little section here in John 10 where the Lord Jesus talks about himself as the great shepherd. When I was a boy uh, growing up in Concord, just over the hill here, I don't know if it's like this in neighborhoods anymore. It's not in my neighborhood. I know where I live in San Lorenzo. But uh, when I was growing up, 1950s, wow, huh? Uh, the children used to play outside, you know, uh, in the streets, in, in the friend's yard or something like that. And uh, there, were, there were kind of two rounds of calls in the evening. It took place. When it was dinner time, my mom would go out on the front porch and go, Rick! And I could be, you know, six houses away. But I'd know that voice. 
And if I were an obedient child, I'd drop what I, if I was playing my, with my friend Steve, who lived down the street and across, across the street a ways. You know, I'd drop what I was doing and I would go home. Any of you ever have that experience as a child here? That's the way it was in my neighborhood. And you'd hear this chorus of voices around 6 o'clock, you know, mothers. This is Mother's Day. What an appropriate time to think about this, you know. That's a fond memory of mine, of hearing my mom out on the porch calling me. And each child, you know, would, would recognize the voice of their parent and they would go home. And then uh, we'd have our dinner, and particularly during the summer, it was still light outside after dinner. We'd go out and play again. One of our favorite things was playing hide-and-seek. And the base would be a telephone pole. And we would go hide in backyards, you know, behind cars, uh, a block away. You know, we'd, we'd cover the whole neighborhood. Uh, and again, beginning dark, you know, time to go in and get ready for bed. And you'd hear the parents come out, you know, the moms would come out, Rick, you know, Steve. And wherever you are, you'd, you'd hear your, your mom's voice. And I say mom now because if you didn't come after like one or two calls from the mom, then it was the father. And he didn't call like the mom did. You know, the mom said, Rick. And the dad would come out, Rick. When you heard that, you know you're in trouble. It's too late now. But uh, I think of that because there are many passages in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus talks about uh, this intimate relationship that a real believer has with him. It's a wonderful thing. And, and the idea that, uh, for example, here in John 10, that he calls us by name. Isn't that wonderful? He says, we're his sheep and he calls us by name. And it says about us, that there's something special about that relationship between us. And it says, we know his voice. It says here in John 10. Isn't that interesting? He talks about the sheep. It says, the sheep hear his voice. And later it says, they know his voice. The idea being that somebody else could come in and call the sheep, the, using the picture of the shepherd, and they'll ignore him because they know it is not their shepherd's voice. They just know his voice. You know, like when my, my ear was tuned to the frequency of my mom's voice. And I wouldn't even hear the other moms. But if my mom yelled my name, I knew right away it was her voice. And that's what he says it's like for us. Here in verse 3, To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you know what I'm talking about. Now, the interesting thing is, saints, you know, we've never heard his voice, have we? I don't know what the voice of Jesus sounds like. Now, this is not dogmatic, so don't go out here and teach us his doctrine. But I personally believe that when, when the rapture comes and it says the Lord descends with a shout, I think it's not going to be some kind of mass thing, you know, very impersonal, uh, you know, just all kind of caught together in a mob and there's Jesus way off in the distance. I really believe that we're going to hear our name. I think Jesus is going to call us by name. There's another picture of this with Martha, uh, pardon me, Mary, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Remember, she went to the tomb and she didn't recognize Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. And she's troubled and she's pleading with him, if you take in the body, bring it back, you know. And you know what brought her to recognize Jesus? You know it well. He said one word. He said, Mary. And hearing that name, it says immediately she recognized him. 
Now, you've never heard that spoken to you, but I really believe I'm going to hear Rick, and it's going to be Jesus speaking. And it's going to be the sweetest sound I've ever heard. And I'm going to know it's his voice. And it's like the moms, you know, it's going to be a call home. Now, you've never heard that, but I really believe it's going to be such a personal first uh, encounter with the Lord Jesus. It's going to be something like Norman, and you're going to hear him say your name, John, Tom, Mary, put your name in there. And it's going to be the beginning of eternal joy with the one that loves us so much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you now and we speak to you with the eye of faith. But Lord, we, your people, we tell you we're here waiting for you, Lord. We're waiting to hear you call us. Oh, what a sweet sound that's going to be. And we ask you, we have a prayer request, Lord. Make it now. In your precious name.